I invite you to turn back with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 16 and 17. Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17. And once again, it's important we bear in mind the thrust of this passage. Within the overall context of the author's concern that his readers continue believing in Christ, that they do not defect from the Lord through the pressures of persecution, through the deceitfulness of sin, he urges them to strive for holiness without which he says no one will see the Lord. Verse 14. He impresses on them the need to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no one is functioning as a bitter root among them, thus defiling other believers. And here in verse 16, his further charge is that they should see to it, we pick up at verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place to repent, though he sought it with tears. This incident of Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew is found in Genesis 25, verses 29 to 34. And to begin with, you and I will not fully appreciate this warning of the writer of Hebrews unless we understand the respect in which Esau is described here as a fornicator, as a sexually immoral person. The question is, in what respect was Esau such a person? Some Bible teachers see Genesis chapter 26, verses 34 and 35, as well as Genesis 28, 8 and 9, as providing grounds on which Hebrews 12 and verse 16 would describe Esau as a fornicator, as a sexually immoral person. According to these passages, Esau took two Canaanite women to be his wives, which decision of his made his parents upset. In the words of the text, it made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And we know this was the case, particularly with his mom in Genesis 27, verse 46. She says to the effect, I loathe my life, I hate my life because of these women that he has married. And so the word of God tells us there, those two passages, that when he realized that this made his parents unhappy, he went and took as his wife a daughter of Ishmael, Abram's son. Now, whereas the passages in Genesis do not explicitly charge Esau with being a fornicator, even though he had married outside the chosen clan, Jewish tradition regards these verses as implying that he was sexually 
immoral. Some Bible teachers argue, however, that because the narrative in Genesis does not describe him as such, the term sexually immoral does not refer to him so that the only qualifying term we have in verse 16 that applies to Esau is the word unholy. Of course, grammatically speaking, that interpretation is a valid one. But I suggest to you that another way of interpreting this text, and this is the one to which I personally hold, is to take the word pornos, the Greek word pornos, translated fornicator, in a spiritual figurative sense. That is, as referring to the idea of spiritual infidelity, as symbolizing unfaithfulness to the Lord, in fact, time and again throughout Scripture, we see such usage of the Greek word pornos and its corresponding Hebrew root word zana. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16, Ezekiel 16, and verse 15, Hosea 1, verses 2 and 5, Jeremiah 2, verse 20, to name a few Old Testament references. We see that Israel, in pursuing other loyalties, in pursuing loyalties other than the living God, is described as engaging in prostitution, as playing the harlot. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 33, God threatens unbelieving Israel that their children would suffer for their faithlessness. And the word that is used for faithfulness in the Greek version of the Old Testament, that is the Septuagint, the word there in Numbers 14.33 for faithfulness is the same word that is used here in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. Pornos translated fornicator or sexually immoral. Well, skip over to the New Testament and there you'll also find that the language of sexual infidelity is used in a spiritual sense to refer to professing believers in Christ who decidedly, deliberately align themselves with the world, fraternizing with the world, departing from Christ. You see, for example, in James chapter 4, verse 4, the apostle James, rebuking in the most scathing terms, professing believers in Christ who were fraternizing with the world. Here's what James says as he addresses them in James 4, and verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8, 17, 2, 4, and 5, as well as Revelation 18, 3, 9, and Revelation 19, verse 2, we find in these verses the word that is used here in our text is used to describe those, once again, who decidedly depart from the Lord. You see, the sobering truth that we gather from these references is that when, as professing believers in Christ, you and I forge friendship with the world, when we depart from the Lord, when we are not faithful to the Lord, when we relegate the Lord to a secondary place in our lives, breaking faith with him, 
God likens such disloyalty to fornication. He sees it as spiritual adultery. He sees it as a violation of covenant with him who should be our supreme love. And for sure, that's not a pleasant thought, but that's how God sees it. And so I submit to you that in describing Esau as a fornicator, the writer of Hebrews is intent on portraying him as one who breaks covenant with God, as one who is representative of an apostate, as one who turns his back on the things of the Lord. That is why it is not surprising, verse 16 describes him as an unholy person, an unholy person. Now let me say here that this word, unholy, is the word that is translated in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 as profane. Inherent in this word used by the writer of Hebrews, the word bebelos, translated unholy, is the idea of trivializing, of treating as commonplace and with contempt that which is sacred, that which is holy. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, the word is translated irreverent. By extension, this particular word, which the writer uses to describe Esau as unholy, profane, irreverent, ungodly man. That's what the idea here we find here. The writer is suggesting that Esau was a profane man. He was irreligious. He was worldly. He was ungodly. It connotes the idea that he was worldly-minded, that he lacked concern for the things of God. That's what is conveyed by that particular word that the writer uses here for unholy. As one lexicon comments on this word, it denotes profane men who are far from God, who are ethically deficient by the standards of the word of God, and who are unreceptive to God. Now that, according to the writer of Hebrews, was exactly the kind of person Esau was. But we have to ask the question this morning, what was it about Esau's choice to sell his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup that earned him this infamous description of being a fornicator, of being unholy? And to determine this, we need to understand the significance of this thing called the birthright. What was this birthright all about? In fact, the word actually in the text of scripture, in the original, is actually the plural. It is birthrights. He sold his birthright so that the word has to do with the inherent rights of the firstborn. It was not just one right or one blessing, but it was a plurality of rights and blessings that were associated with the birthright. The word has to do with the inheritance 
inheritance rights of the firstborn. It speaks of the blessings that came with his being the firstborn son of Isaac. What were some of those blessings? Among such blessings were the right to govern the family in the absence of the father. Esau holding the birthright, what that meant was that he was the priest of the family in the absence of the father. He would lead the family in worship. He would see, and of course, if he had smaller brothers, smaller siblings, he would see to their discipline. It meant having a double portion of his father's inheritance. And for Esau in particular, the birthright meant the blessing, the privilege of being connected with the promised Messiah by way of lineage on account of the Abrahamic covenant. As the immediate grandson of Abraham, Esau no doubt knew very well the promises God made to Abraham concerning the seed through whom the whole earth would be blessed. He knew that. This and other related blessings would have been Esau's, humanly speaking. And Mark, we say humanly speaking, because based on what we know from Scripture and the providence of God, he was not to have the birthright, and in fact, he did not end up with the birthright, because in the plan and providence of God, it was Jacob, the younger to whom the birthright should fall. We see here yet another instance, one of those instances in Scripture where divine sovereignty does not excuse human responsibility when it comes to sin and carelessness. Esau was very much responsible for what he did. Esau, in selling his birthright, we are saying this morning, acted irreverently. He acted in an ungodly manner. He acted in a way that was disrespectful of that which was a sacred trust. It was precisely this sacred endowment, this precious endowment, that of his birthright that Esau sold all for a bowl of lentil stew. And to underscore the horror of what he did, the irreverence of his act, the gross ungodly nature of what Esau had done, whereas Hebrews 12 verse 16 says that he sold his birthright for a single meal, Genesis 25 verse 34 gets to the heart of the matter by stating that he despised his birthright. You see, having no regard for that which was sacred, for that which was of spiritual transcendent value, Esau bartered away his birthright. As far as he was concerned, the reality and worth of divine blessings that were, were involved in the birthright was neither here nor there. In a manner of speaking, we could say this, he could care less about the birthright 
and all that it entailed, including its spiritual significance. Hence his whole action, his whole attitude toward the birthright was one of sheer dismissal. His attitude toward his birthright was like that of Jesus, was, sorry, was like that of those people whom Jesus spoke of. Remember he told this parable of the king who gave a wedding feast for his son, his son who was to get married. And it, that in response to the wedding invitation to the king's son, Matthew 22 verse 5, they paid no attention and went away. What are we talking about there? Scant disregard. Trading his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup, he was like Balaam, who forsook the way of God for the wages of unrighteousness. 2 Peter 2, verse 15. His was a mindset like that of Judas, who seeing no preciousness in Christ, no worth in Christ, traded him for the paltry price of 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26 and verse 15. In selling his birthright for a single meal, Esau, in the most brazen, shameless manner, made evident his priority. And what was his priority as evidenced by his selling the sacred endowment in his birthright? The fact that of greater importance to him was his belly rather than the blessing of God. Esau loved his belly more than he loved God. In the words of one writer, the profanity of Esau's mind in despising his birthright was seen in the fact that he esteemed a passing gratification of the palate above noble permanent privileges ordained of God. Listen again to Genesis 25, verse 32, to get something, to get an idea of the sheer irreverence, the sheer disregard Esau displayed toward the sacred deposit, namely his birthright. Listen to Genesis 25, 32. Esau said, I am about to die. Remember, he came home hungry. He saw his brother with a soup. Sumptuous, delicious soup, no doubt. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? In effect, what he was saying was, right now, my drive for food, the satisfaction of my hunger is all I care about. Right now, this bowl of stew is of far greater importance to me than my birthright. Let my birthright go. I must satisfy my appetite. I must satisfy my hunger at any cost. And so in the words of one writer, Esau lived for the immediate, not the ultimate. Do we have a portrait here of the kind of person Esau was? Do you begin to see something of the heart of this man? See the kind of man that he was? Fleshly, 
carnally minded, living after the flesh, to use the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 7, and 13 is how we could describe Esau. Esau was a man who lived according to what? The flesh. So materialistic was Esau in his outlook, in his mindset, his sole concern was for the instant gratification of his fleshly desires. Evidently, Esau was the kind of person who lacked discipline, who lacked the ability to control himself, who lacked the ability to bring his body under subjection, and lacking such discipline, he did precisely what many a person today would do, what many an ungodly person would do today, and that is to sacrifice principle, conviction, moral and spiritual values on the altar of personal comfort and convenience. The writer of Hebrews is saying to his reader, watch out and be on the alert that none of you be like Esau. You say, can a professing believer live like that? Live irreverently toward the things of God? Live with utter sheer disregard for the things of the Lord? Willing, if necessary, willing, if push comes to shove, as we would say, jettison, discard one's faith in Christ for personal convenience, for personal satisfaction, to satisfy some lust? Yes, it is possible. And the writer is warning here in our text. He says there's danger associated with such kind of attitude, with such kind of action. With a mindset on earthly things, Esau's God was his belly, to use the language of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19. And my friends, when one indulges the flesh living for physical, temporal pleasures, whenever one lives for sin, be it sexual sin, be it drunkenness, injustice, ill will, whatever the sin or sins might be, when one lives for things other than God, for pursuits and pleasures other than God, one is in effect doing exactly what Esau did. As judged by what can be clearly seen as the alarmingly foolish choice he made, Esau, we could also say, lacked discernment. He lacked discipline. He could not control himself. He could not control his appetite such that he placed his physical drives, he placed his appetite, he placed his belly over and above God's blessings, the sacred. But he lacked discernment. He lacked discernment. How so? Well, as we said earlier, think of all that the birthright signified, chief of which was the spiritual dimension, the fact that it would afford him the opportunity to be the priest of the family. That it would afford him a connection with Christ the Messiah. Why? Because it was through 
the seed of Abraham, through the seed of the people of faith, the people of God, that Messiah, the Lord Jesus, would come. Esau, when he traded, when he bartered that birthright for a bowl of lentil soup, was giving up all of that. Why? He lacked discernment. Discernment as to the value of what he was trading. His was a foolish choice in that he bartered away future blessings for a fleeting temporary benefit. Indeed, his was a most foolish choice, devoid of spiritual discernment when we consider this, that whereas his birthright, watch this, whereas his birthright would have afforded him, according to Deuteronomy 21 verse 17, a double portion of his father's inheritance, Notice, according to our text, he was content to trade that double portion of the inheritance for what the writer describes as a single meal. You see what the writer is doing here? The writer is employing arithmetic, and he's employing and comparing value. He is giving up that which would afford him a double portion of blessing, of the father's inheritance, and he's giving up all of that, including the spiritual dimension, the spiritual blessing, he's giving up all of that for just a single meal. Which, of course, he would eat, satisfies hunger, and then be hungry again. How foolish. It's no wonder that Genesis 25, 34 Closes the section related to his selling his birthright with these words. Listen to Genesis 25 verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. In a matter-of-fact way, in a nonchalant, cavalier, careless fashion... Esau gulped the soup as it were, got up, went his way. The narrator says, in this way, he despised it. And by the way, the word that is used there for despise is the word that Isaiah the prophet uses in Isaiah 53 concerning what Christ underwent, how that he was despised and rejected of men. Esau showed utter contempt utter disregard for God's blessing. That's what made him unholy. That's what made him irreverent. The writer of Hebrews once again is saying, watch out and see to it that no one is like Esau. Because when one operates like that, one is engaging in spiritual infidelity. One is, in fact, unholy. And what was the consequence of Esau's foolish choice, his foolish transaction? This is where we come, verse 17. We read in verse 17, for you know that afterward. Listen to what the writer is saying by way of warning. He says, you know that afterward when he desired, when he wanted, when he wished, when he longed for the blessing, to inherit the blessing, he was what? Rejected. For he found, listen, 
no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. In fact, in more vivid terms, listen to Genesis 27:34 that describes how he really wept. The Bible tells us here in Genesis 27, 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, that is to the effect that Jacob had already gotten the blessing that he would have gotten. He cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, begging his father to bless him as well. Man, did he weep. He wailed, we would say. And oh, my friends, here's a challenging warning, the chilling warning. And the warning is this, that when it comes to the matter of lost opportunities for availing oneself of the saving grace of God, listen, for many, there will be tears of remorse and regret. There will be bitter tears, sad, bitter tears. The problem is all such tears will be in vain. The songwriter said, sad, sad, that bitter wail almost will not avail. You see, having sold his birthright, Scripture is saying here concerning Esau that he could not reverse the transaction. He could not recover the blessing he had bartered away. And so all he could do is weep. And weep bitterly. Well, let me suggest to you, my friends, that his cry was not one of penitence and true repentance. Esau's cry was not a cry of true penitence. It was not a cry of true repentance. Why? Because it was not about how he had treated God, how disrespectful and irreverent he was toward God, how nonchalant and careless he was with the blessings of God. And you see, there are people who, like Esau, will shed tears. They'll listen to preaching and they'll shed tears. They'll get into situations where they'll shed tears and we would say, boy, such a person is really coming to Christ. And yet the truth may be that they're not really tears that lead to salvation. You see, there are people who will be teary and sorrowful, not because they're repentant toward God, but because they realize that their sins have caught up with them. There's maybe a sorrow that stems from sheer embarrassment, from sheer embarrassment over what their sins have done to them. The disgrace, the mess that they have made of their lives, the embarrassment of being exposed, the embarrassment of being caught. There's maybe a sorrow which is simply 
the response to the punishment, the bitter experience they have incurred for their wrong choices. The bottom line is that tears are no sure evidence that one has genuinely repented. There are people who could shed tears and be lost. And so notice what was Esau's main focus. How do we know that his was not a penitence of true repentance? His was not true repentance. His shedding of tears did not signal true repentance. Notice, notice, his focus was on the forfeited birthright. His focus was not on his folly, his sin against God in squandering the birthright. The it which he sought with tears there in verse 17 was not the true repentance, not true repentance, but rather the blessing of the birthright. All he was concerned about was getting back the birthright. There was no mention of his penitence toward God. He did not say, listen, I have I've sinned against God. I've done a foolish thing. I've been irreverent toward my birthright. I've been ungodly with respect to my, in, in, as far as my response to God's blessing is concerned. As John Phillips notes, John Phillips says this, overwhelmed suddenly and too late by the immensity of what he had thrown away, Esau burst into anguish. Sadly, all his tears, all his weepings were of no avail. He wept but he found no repentance. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Beloved, see to it that no one is like that. He's addressing professing believers. See to it that no one is like Esau who squanders away the things of God, the privileges of God's grace. Because he says, as you know, when he would afterward desire to have the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought it carefully with tears, he didn't get it. He did not retrieve it. It was lost irretrievably, gone. Now, by way of application, it's important we understand, first of all, what the text is not teaching. It's very important we understand what this text is not teaching on the matter of salvation. This text is not teaching that if one realizes the mess that one has made of one's life, and that if one cries out to God in all sincerity and, as it were, pleads with God to grant repentance, to forgive one of one's sins, that God may turn one away. Absolutely not. That's not what the text is teaching. And we know that that could not be the case. Why? Not only is it that God command, commands all people to repent according to Acts 17.30 and patiently awaits repentance of all people, 2 Peter 3 verse 9, but he readily welcomes any and all who would come to him. For as our Lord Jesus promised in John 6 verse 37, he says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. My friends, listen. If a person, if you this morning 
somebody listening by on, online, somebody even might be in the throes of conviction of sin, is crying out to God, you can be assured if you really want to turn to God and if you're truly penitent, penitent if you're truly sorrow, God grants repentance. There's no doubt about that. With that said, let's go back to Esau. Esau, we are saying, was remorseful, but he was not repentant. He evidently was not at all sorrowful over the fact that he had acted irreverently toward God, as we said, spurning the blessing of God by treating the birthright in a careless, cavalier manner. He was simply sorrowful over what he came to realize as his irretrievable loss. He carelessly forfeited his birthright inheritance. And why was he not truly repentant before God? If I were giving, if I were teaching in Bible study, I'd certainly ask this question and desire response from you. Why was he not truly repentant before God? Because verse 16 clearly tells us the kind of person he was. He was unholy. He was profane. He was godless. He was an irreligious man, as the Greek word suggests. In fact, one writer, um, I'm indebted to one commentator for pointing this out. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews spoke of someone else who shed tears and cried out to God. The Lord Jesus, in the days of his flesh, he sent up strong crying and tears to God. And the writer of, the, of Hebrews says he was heard because he feared, he feared God. Esau was all teared up. He wept, he wailed. And he did not find repentance because he did not fear God. He was a man whose heart was worldly. He was a man who cared not for the things of God. And so, as Philip Hughes rightly puts it, his weeping was of no avail, for his was not the godly grief which produces repentance that leads to salvation, but the worldly grief which produces death. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. It was his loss, not his profanity, that he mourned. That is why, you know, being saved... It's not some mechanical thing where a person says a prayer. There are people who say, you know, one of these days I'll get saved. At least when I'm on my dying bed, I'll come to Christ. No, you necessarily won't. Why? Because the ability to come, the ability to repent is a gift from God. It is God, Acts chapter 5, verse 31, who grants repentance. It is God who grants forgiveness. And that is why scripture says, if today you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. You have no guarantee that when you're ready to repent, you will. For us, Esau is a picture of the unconverted who trade their soul for this world. Against this backdrop, we hear the words of our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 30, verses 36 through 37. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? 
perhaps the most important thing that will be said in this message is what I'm about to say as we draw to a close. So listen carefully, beloved. Esau is representative of an apostate. He is representative of one who decidedly turns his back on the Lord, falling away, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, from the living God. He's a picture of one who departs from the faith, First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, of one who loves the lust of the flesh and the lust of the world rather than God, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, Second Timothy 4, and verse 10. Now, why is the writer to the Hebrews, why is he bringing up Esau at this point and saying, see that no one is like Esau? And why is he saying to them, listen, you remember that when he sought the, when he sought the birthright he had forfeited, he sought to repent and he was not able to? Why is the writer bringing this up? Going back to the beginning of our text, we hear the writer urging the recipients of his letter to what? To strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. We hearing impressing on them the need for spiritual vigilance, the need to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one is unholy like Esau, that is godless, irreverent. No concern for the things of God. No heart, no love for the things of God. And here in verse 17, we hear him warning how that despite his tears of remorse, Esau found no repentance. You ask, what in the world is he suggesting by these statements? Listen. He is warning them, he is reminding them of similar warnings he gave in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Remember what he said in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3? He said this, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should slip from them. For if every word spoken by angels was steadfast at every transgression, Every disobedience received its just recompense of reward. Here's what he asked. How shall we escape? Who is he talking to? Christians. Professing Christians. He says this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? What is true of that text and what is true of Hebrews? Neglect. Neglect. You see, realizing that some of his readers were veering toward abandoning the faith so as to go back to Judaism, he is reminding them by way of warning that Esau suffered the consequence for abandoning his sacred trust. That's what he's doing here. Indeed, he had already warned them in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Listen to another warning he had already given them, something similar to what Esau did. He warned them in Hebrews 10 verse 29 of the danger of what? Trampling underfoot the Son of God. That's what? Irreverence. Of profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraging the spirit of grace. And what he does there, he calls attention to the dreadful punishment that awaits all who 
is guilty of such willful, blatant apostasy. That's what Esau did when he sold his birthright. It's tantamount to the same thing. He trampled underfoot the birthright. He despised God's blessing. The writer brings up Esau at this point because he's taking them back to Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6. Remember? How that he had warned them, verses 4 through 6, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Similar to Esau. What was true of Esau? Contempt for God's blessing. And what the writer is suggesting in all of these references, beloved, is the great peril there is in knowingly, willingly, and decidedly turning away from Christ for whatever reason. The implication being that one could get to the place of being so hardened in sin, listen carefully, one could get to the place of being so hardened by sin that one becomes, as it were, numb to the ability to repent and turn from sin. Can that happen to a true believer in Christ? Absolutely not. But listen, it could surely happen to one who professes to be saved, but who in the hearts of hearts were never truly saved to begin with. That's why we see people today, and we have said this time and again, that's why we see people today get up and say, you know, I've come to the point, I've deconstructed the faith. I've de I'm no longer a Christian in the truest sense of the word, and um, I feel good. I feel good. You, you hear that kind of thing. Yes, they may have been awakened with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. They may have had some kind of reformation of life, but yet they were never really and truly regenerated. And when the crunch of life sets in, they show their true colors because as our Lord Jesus described them in Mark chapter 4 verse 17, he says this, they have no root in themselves but endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Remember, these Professing Christians, the writer was addressing in the book of Hebrews, they were undergoing persecution. And all throughout the letter, he's saying to them, listen, you need to continue with Christ. Do not defect. Do not turn back. Do not go back to Judaism. Because if you willfully, for whatever reason, turn from him, he says, listen, it is to crucify Christ all over. We're not talking about backsliding this morning. Christians cannot do backslide. In fact, they can sin grievously and be away from Christ. But here's the point. They're going to come back. And one of the ways God brings them back is through what? Chastisement. For if you be without chastisement, of which all God's children are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. So the writer is saying once again, see to it. That no one is like Esau. See to it that no one barters away the blessings of God's grace. 
And here's one more with which we close finally. Hebrews 10 verses 26, 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately, if we keep on sinning deliberately, turning our backs on Christ, treating with contempt the things of Christ and Christ himself after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fire that will, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The writer is saying in a nutshell, do not toy around with sin. Do not toy around with the grace of God. Remain true to him. Stand firm in faith in him. Let nothing derail you. Do not, because of convenience of the moment, sell Christ. Do not trade Christ for the appetites of the flesh, for any kind of indulgence. Because if you keep on doing that, if you keep on living like that, that spiritual infidelity, and on top of that, what will happen is you could get to the place where you're so numb, you, you can't repent, and you only prove yourself in the end that you were never truly saved. That's how I believe the text is to be read. That's what I believe is the thrust of the writer of Hebrews here in our passage this morning. Let me ask this question in clothing. What is the quality of your life before God Within the hearts of hearts as you know it, are you true to him? Are you living for him? Are you the kind of person with one foot in and one foot out where Christ is concerned? Do the people at work know you to be Christian? That's not good. The wonderful news this morning is this, 1 John 1 verse 8, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May God grant that these words would really be etched on our hearts and minds for his name's sake.